0: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sidman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today we have as our co-host Erin Gibbs Van Brunschot. She is the co-director on the security theme of the CDSN. She is also co-director on CanIS, which is the Canadian Information Security Network, and she's also the vice dean of merriment and frivolity over at the University of Calgary. Erin, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, Steve. How about you?
0: Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I wish you were my Vice Dean of Merriment. We we all need to have a vice dean that to to throw parties and such. I I think actually your job is probably a bit less fun than that. So vice doesn't mean
1: the same thing here.
0: What's that doesn't mean the same thing there. No. No. All right. Well, let's get into it. Lots lot been happening all over the defense and security space. The biggest story probably has been Chinese election interference. Since your focus is on sort of the softer side of security things, and this is sort of the, one of the softer forms of of security threats. Doesn't involve bombs and rockets, it involves coercion and involves probably more RCMP than CAF. Uh, I thought I'd be, we'd ask you about what's your take on this story that has been such in the news in Ottawa. Is it resonating out there in the hinterlands?
1: It's definitely resonating out here. I think there's a a lot of. A lot of twists and turns to this or potential twists and turns, but uh, definitely it's got the RCMP involved in some ways and the you know, CSIS, all these different judicial and investigative bodies, I suppose, have been implicated in some ways, but it, it's a fairly serious issue. I imagine it's uh, resonating in Ottawa as well.
0: Oh, absolutely, because it's giving much fodder to conservatives, that, particularly and the NDP a little bit, but particularly conservatives being critical of the government of the day and I guess for me, the challenge is not just what government, you know, what is what is a party supposed to do about it? What is the liberals who are implicated is kind of the wrong word in this because they're not causing this to happen, but they they were the beneficiary largely the last time, which is that it looks like the Chinese were trying to throw votes in, in their direction and mm-hmm. trying to get, uh, prevent conservatives from being uh, elected, although... That was not entirely the case. So, it's one question is what can the liberals do about it? The other question is what what is it that, you know, CSIS, RCMP, all these other actors, what authorities do they have? Uh, what abilities and capabilities do they have? Do we have the right tools? Do we have the right laws? Uh, as you've been watching this, are there reforms we should make? Or is this stuff that government is already enabled to do it? We just need to get. RCMP to, or CSIS or whoever else to to do their job?
1: Yeah, those are all really good questions. I think just starting with what should the Liberals be doing? You know, I think it's a a, a bad move to ignore incoming information. So I think the NSICOP, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, had written their review a couple of years ago and did identify that there was significant threats being posed to the rights and freedom freedoms of canadians and that there were sustained i'm kind of reading quoting from them sustained foreign interference activities so clearly this was on the radar for quite some time so you know and i think what the determination at that point was that it hadn't reached a level of significance to be meaningful and have a meaningful impact on the elections but I think we all know that as information comes in, we have to deal with it in various ways. So I guess this is sort of the question that I have is about the new information. And I suppose everybody has that question about what exactly has been revealed more recently that has caused this to surface again. Because I think it's always been on the radar, but what exactly has sort of been a tipping point to cause the, uh, the debate right now? And I, I think that this finally, the prime minister establishing or telling us that he's going to establish an independent rapporteur makes sense because I think he had to respond in some way. I think though that in my view, he's right not to necessarily go the route of the uh, independent inquiry at this particular point because the inquiry would sort of, it would seem establish what we already knew. And I think maybe this independent rapporteur could take a look at some of the maybe emerging threats. What What are your thoughts?
0: My thought, my first thought is frustration, which is that why do we constantly have to go to some outside actor to ask us to do the stuff that we know we need to do? So we need to have multiple Supreme Court justices, retired, tell us yeah. how to reform the military, even though we know we need to reform the military. Arbor, the latest one, was very clear about that there already had been a lot of reviews and a lot of items that had been identified and not much progress been made. And now with this thing, we had Nisicop and other actors, including my colleagues, Stephanie colleagues Stephanie Carvin and Leo West, amongst others, talk about this stuff for the past several years, and the government wasn't hadn't done anything about it. And so I think the constant across a lot of these different issues is government just puts things off. The you know the liberals were very good at acting quickly with the pandemic of giving people lots of money, but when it comes to the harder work of legislation, of, of setting priorities, of getting the rest of government to act, they just don't really push things very hard, or they don't push things very quickly. I don't know if it's that they hope that things will go away. I don't know if it's they're distracted. But on this one, I could see the trade-off, which is they don't want to offend parts of their base. Yeah, uh, and so they're hoping that this won't matter that much. But given what they saw in 2016 with Brexit and with Trump's election, you know, mm-hmm. you might have not have taken election foreign election interference seriously before then, because well, you know, that's something the United States and the Russians did to various places, but it wasn't really a problem for advanced democracies. But we saw in 2016 that two advanced democracies took major hits to their policies and to their political systems that the Americans the British are still paying for in a big, big way. And Canada shouldn't be complacent about this. Maybe it might have helped the liberals in the last election, but you know, the Chinese may decide, hey, best way to screw with your Canada is to switch sides and have somebody else come to power just to create uncertainty. You know, you don't know how they're gonna do it. And so you've gotta wear two hats at the same time. One is the political hat of what is it good for my party and for our state in power, and the other, which is what is what is my job as the people governing Canada at this moment in time. And I think in both cases, the long-term is obvious. In the short-term, they might be in conflict. But they should have done more, and they can do more, and they should do more to energize the various government agencies to take this seriously, maybe to pass legislation. Uh, this is one of the questions I have that I'm, I'm hoping to ask Minister Anand uh, soon because she's going to be in my class on Thursday, where I'm going to ask her if my students let me. Uh, if they dominate the question time, then I will not have a chance. But my question is, some of the changes that have been asked by Arbor and others require legislation. Why haven't we seen new legislation yet? It may take a while to pass, but why does it take so long to draft legislation? Why do people avoid legislating? We do need new laws here and there. This is what government is supposed to do. Why isn't there? And and we can say the same thing here, right? Now some laws are challenging. Okay, if you require foreign agents to register. Is that going to fix the problem? Is that going to, you know, one of of the sensitivities here is the Chinese of China are not the only folks in, you know, trying to affect our elections. And the Chinese of Canada are being tarnished with this. And so you don't want to go after the Chinese in Canada. You don't want to go after Chinese Canadians. You don't want to go after any specific ethnic group and the problem of playing this issue up and also not doing that much about it. Is it may give others reason to engage in more hatred, for want of a better term, to more, to do a more isolation of of groups that that are already facing other problems. So we're going to talk about the RCMP in a minute. Mm-hmm. One of the other news stories that's come up in the past few weeks is the notion that the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party of China, have established police stations in Canada, which means that they are trying to exert coercion over. Chinese people in Canada. We need to take seriously all the threats posed by the country of China. All the same time, making sure that the Chinese Canadians are not targeted either by the Chinese or by people in Canada, that they can just go live with their lives and be good, you know, be the citizens that they are, and not not face hate from us and not face coercion from China.
1: Yeah, I I think all of those uh, points make sense. I just wanted to talk about that. Uh, your point about frustration. And I get that, that we seem to always want to turn to independent investigators and that sort of thing or independent analysis. I do think we have the tools to just start to move forward. But I was also thinking, uh, there. one of the comments with respect to this issue that I was reading is that the RCMP said that they would not launch a criminal investigation because they didn't have actionable intelligence. So it makes me think that there is ways that pressure from belief actually work if we keep work to affect change I I think we aim at the legislative level rather than at the practical level and if we had police officers willing to take things forward and then you know if it gets thrown out of court it gets thrown out but whatever it still is an effort that's how change gets made because they are, are at least revealing some of the the issues and problems at the sort of at the ground level And when these things are brought to attention, I think you could get legislative change by pressure from the bottom. So for for things like that, those police stations, the Chinese police stations, like we should be actioning something to see if we can affect change rather than waiting for the legislation to change the threshold of what makes uh, foreign interference. You know, bring these things forward. And even if it does mean that you lose the case, it still is creating public awareness where perhaps it hadn't been before. So I think there's lots to be said at the uh, sort of the, the line level for affecting change in these sorts of situations, rather than waiting for legislation and waiting for an independent inquiry. So maybe that's another angle is rather than waiting for the top, starting at the bottom and bringing these things forward.
0: Yeah. I think part of this is that we need to have the various authorities, whether it's public safety or CSIS or RCMP, Be more creative with the authorities they've got. Use the authorities they have. Mm -hmm. If you know where the police, if you have a good suspicion of where the supposed Chinese police stations are in Canada, then sit on them. You don't have to break into them. Just park your cop cars outside and put pressure on those folks. Visibly tail the Chinese operatives who are in Canada. Kick Mm -hmm. out some diplomats from china that are are the handlers for this stuff you don't yeah. need to have proof beyond reasonable doubt to kick out a diplomat you just can kick out a diplomat whenever the hell you feel like it and they don't we don't owe them anything we don't owe them evidence this is true for any country that's operating in canada and it's true for any country any any place that canada is operating we don't need despite what uh, minister Jolie said we don't need to have that much proof we can just say well you know guess what Mm-hmm. We don't really need to have uh, the Chinese consulate in Toronto or Vancouver be this big. Yeah. If we wanted to, we could just get rid of it entirely. I'm not saying that's the right idea. I think engagement's mm-hmm. good. But if, if we decide that there are actors from those embassies from those consulates, that are doing more harm than good in Canada, we can just say, you know what? You need to have your representatives in, in Ottawa, but we don't really need to have your representatives elsewhere. And what might happen then is that we might lose consulates in China and mm-hmm. that doesn't really break my heart. No, there are probably diplomats who can say why we need to have consulates all over the place in China, but oh no, we could do less business in China. Oh, that hurts my feelings.
1: You're being a, a real hard, hard character here. i
0: I am. I, I, I am. I you know China has not cut us to me breaks the last few years. I mean, they held yeah. us hostage for a long time. They're trying to be as coercive as possible. they They do not have the right to have, you know, coercive apparatus operating freely in Canada. So if they set up police stations here, like they set them up elsewhere, then then that is very much a reason to say, nope, you can't do this. We don't have police stations in your country. You don't have police stations in ours. If you're making your if your consulate is a tool in that process, you don't need to have a consulate.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing too that this relates to is the communication between these agencies. So the communication seems fraught in many ways between the RCMP and CSIS and that sort of thing. And you wonder, you know, everything is sort of couched under uh you know you can't it, confidentiality and all of that sort of thing but obviously when it comes to national security you'd think that there'd be a greater effort to information share and maybe there is this is where it becomes a bit fuzzy because nobody really tells you what information is being shared or how it would be actioned in certain ways so you you do wonder about these police stations and what what the communication has been between various uh, government departments with the, the RCMP
0: yeah that that is something we don't know and so part of the thing is is that whatever messages we're sending to china we're doing so discreetly whatever uh internal sharing we're sharing with the americans and our allies about this sort of stuff we don't really know about but Mm -hmm. you said at the outset that information is really important on all this and that is the best way to handle covert efforts is to make them uncovert make them overt Mm-hmm. So, if the Chinese are, government is trying to influence our elections, if the Chinese government is trying to coerce Chinese Canadians, then air it out. Uh, provide as much information as you can, without endangering your sources too much. Yeah, and and show what's going on. That's all I got. I mean, from this is that that that, that, that doesn't require legislation. It doesn't even require agencies to do anything. It requires the government of the day to be more transparent. The problem with our country is that that is not an instinct that they have to be transparent about stuff. I mean, this is something that I've experienced in my own institution where previous generations of, of staffers at, at NIPSIA, for instance, felt information was their own and they didn't share it with other, other staffers or other professors because that would, that's their information. And I, I think this is a cultural dynamic in Canadian bureaucracy that we need to get beyond. And I think this government needs to get beyond of it needs to. Be more transparent. And then, you know, the classic thing is, is that you always get more in trouble when things leak out rather than when you
1: tell people what's going on. Exactly. I think another characteristic associated with this is the, it, uh, maybe a bureaucracy is generally, but this, this notion that if you don't directly deal with it, it'll somehow go away on its own. So <laughs> just uh, leave it alone and don't admit that it's there. Then, you know, it kicks it down the road for the next group to have to deal with often but I think that that's also a tendency is to just ignore it in in hopes that it will resolve uh, maybe not resolve itself but that it won't rear its head so you have to deal with it
0: yeah I think we're 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 done with this for now the next topic was well one of the challenges of having RCMP do stuff is that the RCMP itself has been in a lot of trouble lately. Lots of lots of issues have arisen from mismanaging the the murder spree in Halifax, to other dynamics. I think you know mishandling the convoy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what is your take on the latest news regarding the Royal
1: Canadian Mounted Police and the review of the standoffs? Yes. Yes. Well, I think it's a good thing that somebody's providing some oversight. And this is this is where independent oversight does make sense. So the the uh, specific thing that I think you're referring to is the Sowetan and Coastal Gas Link Pipeline and the oversight that is being provided by the Watchdog Group, which is called the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission of BC specifically. So I, I think the RCMP and any policing agency... Any agency that has the privilege of the use of force should have independent oversight committees um, constantly surveilling what they what they do. So I I think this is a good development, whether or not they'll be able to move the needle in terms of exactly what the RCMP do and how they're addressing this issue is a good question, because we have uh, governments involved, obviously, big money. There's a lot of dollars involved in the pipeline. it's uh, but I think it definitely nothing will happen if you don't have that oversight. So you can't obviously let these groups just uh plow through the environment like they might like to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I I, I don't know enough about the RCMP. I come at it from a very American perspective, which was hey, they wear the great uniforms and they're super Excellent cool. Yes. Yeah, and they've got the neat horses and all that sort of thing. Uh And so I don't really have any expertise about the RCMP. It just, there's a broader dynamic in North America, which is that a lot of folks in charge of policing, a lot of folks doing the policing don't think that they are are to be overseen. Mm -hmm. And so we just had the RCMP commissioner resign. I don't, do we have a new RCMP commissioner yet?
1: I don't think I've heard actually.
0: I don't think so. And uh, when Lucky left, I don't think anybody was really that sad to see her go.
1: And probably nobody anxious to step up either.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's that too. I think that we need to change the culture in Canada about what police people think that they have to do. Yeah, Uh, I think they have to, you know, be responsive to oversight. They have to be more transparent themselves. They they shouldn't be resisting oversight.
1: This particular case, I think, is complicated by the issue of jurisdiction. And I obviously love to harp on that concept, but you know, they, uh, there's a lot of groups making claims in this particular area. So I think that is another component that requires some sort of independent oversight. And in lots of these situations, or other situations. Maybe not at all. Even with the trekker convoy in Ottawa, there was a jurisdiction issue. I don't know about the Nova Scotia thing. I think that was fairly clearly within the jurisdiction of the RCMP. Yeah, but this sure particular uh, environmental uh, impact issue is really complicated in terms of who is making claims and who who has the right to have authority over that particular area. So I think the uh, the actual environment, the physical environment is really coming into play in this situation in ways that are different potentially than other oversight bodies that have to look at the RCMP and its its actions?
0: So I, I think the answer is pretty clear, but I just don't know if, it's good, if things are going to change that much. Again, this requires the the Prime Minister to put pressure on, on his Minister of Public Safety, and the Minister of Public Safety then has to put pressure that this has to be a priority. And I just... I just don't have a whole lot of faith in this government to to put the pressure needed to get things done on on these kinds of things.
1: Yeah, it's the federal government, but it's also the British Columbia, the the province here, is also a big player in all of this as well. So there's going to be pressure, or should be pressure, from a, a number of levels. But right now, it seems as though the 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 province is siding with the pipeline. Yeah. So. Um, but the right. you know the complication of this occurring on unseated land is is another factor, and then the um, apparent disagreement between the hereditary chiefs and some of the other indigenous groups are is a is a big thing. And the, I, as I understand it, one of the, the the issues with regard to this situation is that the hereditary chiefs are sort of they're more the traditional form of government, and therefore and they are in opposition to the government, the indigenous government that is being recognized by the province. Uh, oh so it's it's a bit of a, a mess. But it seems like maybe that it, you might advise that you should sort out the mess before you continue on with the pipeline. But this is a mess that's probably not going to be easily and readily resolved.
0: Yeah, you're right. I, I hadn't really thought that much about this other challenge to it, uh which is... Who has authority for all the different communities in Canada? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that you and also Andy Knight and some other folks in the CS are taking seriously. That it's not simple of you know the federal government does this, and he these are the people you talk to the federal government. The provincial government is that. The band or or community governance is this way. It's particularly challenging with First Nations and when you have. Multiple actors claiming to represent the same group, exactly, and, and it becomes very difficult for the folks who are complicit with all the bad behavior before to say, "Ah, we know which of your key leadership folks deserve uh, to be to represent you, you at the table." Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution. That it really depends from community to community about How do they reconcile? their collective decision-making processes
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and you've got the traditional legal system and the Canadian le- legal system and uh, it's uh, and different variations and levels within each of those so it's it's complicated that's for sure
0: yeah well maybe what's less complicated or maybe complicated in a different way is our third story we wanted to to talk about reflexes die hard that is there was a story that came out this week about uh, the French ambassador to NATO was discussing the underrepresentation of women in defense and security uh, that she noted that she's just one of six female ambassadors to NATO of thirty countries um, uh, Carrie Buck. Uh, was our uh, rep, our civil rep or ambassador to NATO for a while, but she's the only person who served in that capacity for Canada. So we now face a situation where we haven't made as much progress as we would have liked. Uh, is this something that you've observed uh, as you look around at the experts in your field, at the people in government, we're still not moving quickly enough to have better uh, representation by women?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I agree with this observation. It's pretty pretty difficult or pretty hard to encourage, I think, often uh, diverse groups to come into this sort of hard security realm. I think, you know, one of the things that we've tried to suggest at CMSS, Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies, is that we're opening up the idea of what security looks like. And it's not just about guns and tanks. It is about, you know, food security, energy security, and sort of um, broadening this notion of what security and defense might look like. So if we if we open up our, our minds to a wider perspective on security, we will attract uh, more people into the field. And some of those people might also find their way into more of the hard security realm and the military and that sort of thing. But I, I think it's really been uh, a challenge to to show people that there's a place for them in uh, a realm that has been dominated by white men. So it, I think until we sort of open up the, our eyes to what we might do differently or what we might incorporate into that realm, we're probably still going to have fewer fewer diverse groups come into the security and defense uh-huh. uh, world than we might otherwise. That's, that's my take on it is you know just expanding that notion of what we consider to be relevant in that area
0: i agree but i, I, I one thing I, I i'd suggest though is this should be the easy part or the relatively easy part which is i in my world of of scholarship on defense and security stuff there are plenty of sharp women who do you know nuclear strategies civil military relations defense procurement you know before we even open up you know, the definition of security, which again, we need to and the CDS has been doing yeah. to other topics. There are plenty of smart women, capable women in this, in this realm. And when we've been trying to do a better job within our network of, of diversifying, we found it hard in some areas because bringing in, for instance, indigenous people is hard because the government, particularly the course of apparatus of the government, was aimed directly at them, and so these communities have legitimate fears and resentment towards the military and towards the yeah. police, and therefore are not that comfortable hanging out with an organization like ours, which networks with them, which 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 talks to those people. Mm-hmm. Women, on the other hand, while while we can go on and talk about how women have been treated poorly when they've been in the military, and we've had plenty of episodes on that, they don't have the same kind of fear as an entire Group or concern about the calf, the RCMP colonizing women in the same way, right? And mm-hmm. so it, there shouldn't be this on the on, on the other side of the equation of the community going, no, we're not going to hang out with you guys, or we need to be convinced, or we need to have some assurances uh, about sincerity or whatever.
1: Right.
0: Women have been doing this stuff for a long time, and maybe when you know when I started study this stuff in the 1980s there weren't that many women in the space but now there's plenty of women in the space and we were creative in canada to go hey we need a minister of national defense there's this woman who knows corporate governance there's a woman who knows defense procurement because she's on the minister of procurement and so they brought over anita anand and so that was it would might have been done symbolically to try to assuage people about the plight the, various uh, sexual misconduct and abuse of power crises the military has been going through but it was Mm -hmm. also that there was a woman in government in the correct party that is the current party of power that Mm -hmm. had a good background to do this job so it wasn't just a matter of you know finding a tough woman and and throwing her into the fray it was that there are plenty of women out there who have the qualifications to do Mm -hmm. this kind of work and particularly for ambassador to nato uh we have plenty of women ambassadors you know is probably got better gender representation than other, other agencies of government, certainly better than uh, you know, the military. So there that shouldn't be a problem. Carrie Buck should not be the only one to have ever had this job. It doesn't mean that we always have to have a woman be do this job. But it does mean that there's there's an availability of talent. I think there's in other areas with other groups of people, there may be harder to find people who are willing to do the job where they're trying to Foster inclusion is harder. This should be a relatively easy case. And hanging out in Brussels is not a bad gig. So it shouldn't shouldn't be that hard to find smart women in global affairs to be ambassadors to NATO. And as you pointed out, to go to the next stage, which is, you know, with bombs and rockets, particularly been in the past seen as a male dominated enterprise, it's less so these days. Mm -hmm. But the reality of NATO has been that it's been dealing with refugee crises, it's now dealing with climate change, it's dealing with all kinds of things that are not seen as traditionally male-dominated fields. And so we should be thinking about, there there, there are plenty of people who are qualified for this that don't fit into the traditional demographic categories.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think there are many qualified people that for whatever reason are just not necessarily imagining themselves in those positions. And, it, you know, I think the, the push to get people to um, or to appoint people to these in these positions makes a lot of sense because you can't really imagine yourself in a position until you see often somebody who looks like in a position of of power. So I think it's really important, especially with Anand, that she was appointed so that it seems like a a realistic career path and a realistic career yeah. choice for for those who are sort of at um, maybe the early stages of their careers, or elsewhere, even yeah. some of those old types.
0: <laughs> I I do think that there's a lot more role models these days. If you take a look at, for instance, the United States, the Secretary of Defense is not a woman, but the Deputy Secretary of Defense is, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of the people under Lloyd Austin are sharp women. You know, it's and our allies. I I do think that there was a a reason. Defense ministerial. That is when the defense ministers of NATO met, and there were a fair amount of women uh, amongst them. But again, it's it's not fifty percent by any stretch of the imagination. It's just more than what my low expectation was. So part of it is we need to, I think, this call for doing better to change our expectations, not to not be satisfied with one quarter or one third or mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But women still happen to be fifty percent of the population. We should have we should have better representation.
1: We should, for sure. And I, I was um, looking at a recent quote by Al Okros, who's um, part of the CDSA network, and he was quoted, I think, in a Stats can issue saying, we need to stop looking at how others can join us, but rather it's about changing the us that they are trying to join into. So I think all of what we've been saying sort of speaks to that is looking at ways which we could potentially change the, um, maybe the career paths of some of the ways in which people make their way through the the calf and, and uh make their way through, through whatever we're calling the security realm you know that maybe we we just need to and i think that's what we're doing with respect to sort of broadening that uh, definition and operationalization of security by encouraging uh change within in some to some degree well
0: I think that makes a lot of sense to me i think we've covered a lot of territory today in our next segment we're going to have Max Brooks, author of World War Z and other fun books, and David garnstein Ross—they are teaming up to do simulations. That David runs Valens, which is a partner of the CDSN that has been running simulations in the United States and in Canada for the CDSN and for other folks, including I believe they they ran a simulation for Canis uh, this past summer. It is. Yes. Last summer. Too. And so they're going to talk a little bit about what what this stuff is and why they're doing it. And, why are they teaming up? Why is a, a gamer teaming up with a, a fiction writer about this stuff? I really enjoyed talking to him. I'm a big fan of of Max Brooks's work. I forget how much of my fanboyness showed up in the interview or showed up in the pre-interview or in the post-interview. Max Brooks is also the son of Mel Brooks and and Bancroft, so he. Yeah, some interesting Hollywood stories to tell too, but I think most of those were, were left in the living room floor. But it's going to be a fun interview, so I, I encourage people to stick around. Aaron, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm sorry I didn't bump into you when I was in uh, uh, Banff and Calgary. Uh, on the ski hill, you mean? <laughs> yeah, on the ski hill. Uh, I'm glad that you and JC are hosting the capstone next week a CDSN event that brings together the best speakers from our partners' events over the past year. It's really a major contribution you guys are making, and I, I hope uh, you enjoy hanging out with those sharp people.
1: I will, and thank you so much, Steve. I, we Well, I guess we're not going to see you next week, but it will be great to see all the students and participants for the Capstone. We're looking forward to it.
0: Great. I'm citing Melissa Jennings, our, our Chief Operating Officer, to carry the flag for the, for the HQ. Excellent. And for those who are in the postdoc business, we still have a couple of days left of our postdoc application process for the next CDSN postdoc. We'll be announcing some other initiatives in the next month or so for students and other people. Thanks again and uh, have a good couple of weeks.
1: Thank you, Steve. Talk to you soon.
0: Today on Battle Rhythm, we have a special set of interviews. We're interviewing two people at once as they are working together. Uh, on simulations and gaming. Uh, The first is David Garenstein Ross, who is the CEO of uh, the Valens Group, which is Valens Global, which is a simulations and gaming company that David can tell us a bit more about. And the second person is Max Brooks, who is famous for one of my favorite books of all time, World War Z, which is the best zombie book that I can recall. Uh, Don't blame him for the movie. Anyway, I think uh, that this is going to be a really interesting conversation about how do we practice and understand uh, potential situations down the road and be prepared ahead of time as opposed to being surprised by things. So last summer, Valence helped us at the Summer Institute with an interesting simulation about the Arctic and about ships approaching the Arctic and what to do about it. And so we are now thinking these days about what's going to happen in the Arctic. And he's run the simulation for us. He's done it for the Canadian Department of National Defense and for Georgetown. So, David, we'll start with a starting point. What is a wargamer simulation? And what is Valens' approach to this stuff? And how is it different from other game designers?
2: Well, thanks, Steve. It's, it's great to join you. And it's great to be on this podcast with Max, who I uh, deeply respect. And I think does um, some really important creative work that uh, both intersects with and often is entirely independent of the national security space. Uh, So what games and simulations are is is a rather flexible thing, right? At most basically a simulation in some way tries to approximate reality and approximate a somewhat realistic set of decisions Uh, to make it into a game. The players have to make meaningful decisions that are bounded by rules. And those decisions in some way have to have an impact on the outcome. But given what I was talking about in terms of what games and simulations are, it can be you know, a very simple board game to a simulated information environment where people make meaningful decisions, which is normally where ours sit, to, at a more elaborate scale, a full uh, virtual reality-enabled world that people seem to be walking through and interacting with. What we do differently about games... Well, I guess there's one other thing I should say before I talk about our approach, which is games and simulations serve a variety of purposes. Uh, For Valens, we've used games and simulations to do such things as uh, teach students about international relations. Um, They've been running standalone classes. We've used them to help policymakers build policy toolkits. We've done this with the Global Counterterrorism Forum. Uh, We've used them to help companies think through potential ransomware scenarios and see if their incident response systems are really aligned. And for each of them, there's going to be a very different build because client needs to prepare for ransomware scenarios are nowhere like what university students need to learn uh, aspects of international relations that may be non obvious and that a simulated environment can better introduce them to. So what we've done differently is, in general, our simulations represent not only investment in building a very realistic and immersive information environment, social media, news articles, videos, intelligence memos, and the like, but also we've invested in the kind of things that Max is very strong in. We've invested in storytelling, Mm -hmm. in world building, in character development, which is One of the things when I first talked to Max about our practice, I think we bonded over in that he kind of quizzed me on underlying motivations of different characters to see if I had thought through the world or if it just skated along on the surface. And to me, people learn through stories, they learn through stories that live and breathe where the world doesn't fall apart upon kind of scratching the surface of it. So that's where we've placed our our investments. I think that is different in major ways than how most war games and simulations are designed as of 2023
0: really cool and when you're talking about sort of the rules of the games and how that sets the context i can't help but think about the contrast and i'm sorry to bring this up max but i'll bring it up anyway of zombie movies where you have slow zombies i think you have the most interesting kinds of stories give time and pace to to tell a story whereas we have fast zombies then humans can't really adapt as much and i think that the joy of of your book is you have slow zombies so every different culture and political system can adapt in different ways which I think made that book so rich but that's enough about Zombies Max what kind of work have you done in the national security space? Well
3: a long time ago my book World War Z was on the presidential reading list of the Naval War College so (laughs) I was was asked to come speak and I think you can still YouTube my talk because I'm very nervous like are you sure you have the right guy but I must have said something right because I was invited back and then invited back again and then invited to speak at a strategic studies group at the Pentagon And from there, I was tapped to be on the Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and the startup think tank, the Modern War Institute at Mm West Point, And I attribute that to a group of mid-grade officers who've served in Iraq and Afghanistan and understand on a very deep level that the old way of doing things simply don't work because they don't have the luxury of sitting in a climate-controlled office somewhere under fluorescent lights and letting things slide. They've watched their friends die. They've watched them be mangled. They've come back with memories that they can't unsee and unsmell. They know things are not working. And they understand that we're in the 21st century now. All the rules have changed and creativity is paramount. And they also understand that our enemies are a generation ahead of us in the creative space, because that goes back to Desert Storm, where we fought a war to deter aggression. There's a very simple reason for Desert Storm, why we let CNN and all the cable news networks cover it, because we wanted to show the world, if you meet America on the battlefield, you'll be annihilated. That's not what happened. Our enemies took the lessons of Desert Storm to be if you're going to challenge America, don't do it on the battlefield. Get creative. Just like the Germans went around the Maginot Line in tank divisions or under the British Navy in U-boats, We need to think creatively. And as a result, we are now facing enemies who have mastered asymmetry. And we need to take those 18th century Prussian ideals of warfare and throw them away. So they're looking into all creative spaces and they've asked me to come and help them out. And that's how I got into this racket.
0: Excellent. So David, what are the benefits of war games? What kind of institutions have you run war games for? The benefits of war games, I think,
2: very much depend on the purposes one seeks going in. So to me, the biggest difference between a war game and other modes of engagement is that with a game, you're taken out of your immediate, in this world, decision-making or analytic mode and are put into a slightly different world in some way. I think every war game needs to represent a slightly different world something is fictionalized. And generally in ours, we fictionalize as little as possible. But the point is, you want there to be a central underlying theme that drives action. If they step into a world and it looks just like the world today in every respect, it won't necessarily point to where action is. But for Sleeping Giants, for example, the game you just mentioned, which we ran for CDSN and then for the Department of National Defense after, there are a few things that Jump out as being very different at the outset. It's a little bit in the future. So the Arctic ice has melted more than it has today. And there are a bunch of looming decisions with respect to staking Canada's claim to the Arctic and keeping out hostile powers. Secondly, there's a cult like organization called Nutanam Vahaman, which a number of intelligence agencies suspect was set up by the People's Republic of China. And there's a few other major differences. I don't need to get into the whole game scenario, but the point is there are some differences that jump out at you. So to me when people immerse in this somewhat different world and are in dramaturgical roles you're able to set aside your biases as to how you approach the world we're in. Think about the world through a different set of eyes mm-hmm. and I think that does a few things. One is Often you'll find analytic insights there as you interact with that world that are very applicable, but that you might not come across in your normal analytic processes. You get to press on possibilities in a way you don't get to in your day-to-day. And then secondly, with respect to decisions, I think sometimes you're able to get breakthroughs in this world that may be non-obvious, in part because being put in this dramaturgical role, functioning in a fictional world where you get to make sometimes risky decisions, it can open you up to possibilities mm-hmm. that you might just think are closed to you in a normal day-to-day. The final thing is by looking at the world through a different set of eyes, I think that there are both analytic benefits and benefits, especially in a polarized time, of understanding how different actors and different people think and approach and understand the world. Those are all things that I think are benefits. I, I mentioned before, you asked about who we've read them for. I mentioned a few of the clients that we've worked with, but to get into some other examples that show the diversity and range of war games and simulations, one which I thought was very interesting last year was a sports communication simulation that we ran for Wake Forest University. <laughs> yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to do it was it just showed that this was a methodology that could apply in a very different context. And that had this Central plot line where I kind of fell in love with the characters involving this kind of ultra woke knuckleball pitcher who had a Daniel Ortega tattoo and kind of his conservative nemesis, this Nicaraguan pitcher who had very uh, strong views on Daniel Ortega. So there's this central plot line running through it where it was causing just this havoc for the major league baseball teams at the center of the game. Some of the other games uh, have... We've, we've done a lot for universities. Um, Sleeping Giants, the the latest iteration, as you mentioned, the Department of National Defense generously funded an adaptation of the game to make it explore great power competition in the context, uh, especially of middle powers mm-hmm. uh, like Canada, for which there's a different set of imperatives than there is for the US or China. Prior to that, we'd run the game at a number of universities, Duke University, Wake Forest, Carnegie Mellon, uh, we'd read it for uh, Georgetown and Johns Hopkins as well, sometimes as extracurriculars, sometimes as standalone classes and we're preparing to um run a couple, one for a major intelligence conference to help people think through uh trends in terrorism in the medium term uh by bringing to life some you know vivid trends, and another one for the state department uh for the Foreign Service Institute to serve as a capstone exercise at the conclusion of one of their courses for diplomats and foreign service officers who are going overseas. All of them are unique and all of them have different imperatives. And I really enjoy the process of figuring out how to match our design to the needs that a specific customer has.
0: Do you find that different kinds of participants play the games differently or, I'm not saying better or worse, but differently between you know university students, meeting government officials, State Department people versus military? Do you find there's any kind of trends that you see? And does that affect the way you ultimately then create the games to manage the dynamics that are from the different audiences? Or do people play these games mostly the same?
2: No, they play them very differently. And sometimes we even learn from the players and provide recommendations based on what we've seen teams do. So one of the the most devastatingly effective teams that... I've run across in one of our simulations was the Canadian team, primarily uh, the Department of National Defense, but it also had uh, some others within the Canadian government. In the a simulation we ran, this futurism-focused simulation that we've only run once, but it was called Utopia or Oblivion based on the title of a <laughs> Buckminster Fuller book. And what made them so effective, I'd never seen it before, but it's obvious why it's helpful, was they naturally bureaucratized their team. right like yeah until then though every team i'd seen had functioned like a study group Mm -hmm. everyone basically did everything and for the way we design games it's super inefficient because there's always like for a typical game that i design i try to mash up three different plot lines or theme lines and i want people to feel slightly overwhelmed at all times And there's a reason for that, right? The Mm -hmm. reason, whether it's an educational reason or a training reason, is that that's how the real world works, right? Like no matter what you do, you're always slightly or else very overwhelmed. And if the information environment simplifies too much, then it's not going to approximate the way actual decision-making and actual processing of a world goes. So what, what the Canada team did is they determined what their lines of effort were And they assigned people on the team to each line of effort. And it was so effective that since then, we've actually recommended to every team that they bureaucratize. Uh, So there are other distinctions between diplomats and military and Canadians and Americans and others who've run the games and students and professionals. But I just wanted to point to one example of where not only was something different, but it was so effective that we have tried to make every other subsequent team learn from the way that that particular team played.
0: So Canada wins the game by being very bureaucratic. I'm not sure that that's a good reflection of the reality because <laughs> uh, we see the opposite reality uh, most of the time up here. But uh, that's a that's terrific. Max, uh, as I was writing something today, I was having to do all kinds of painful things to cite my sources and more importantly, my co authors sources, which was getting all the formatting was was painful. So I was thinking for myself, if I was a fictional author, I wouldn't have to do footnotes or endnotes. Wouldn't that be great? And I guess for the national people in the national security space, when they look at what you're doing, they think that what you do is easy, because you're just making stuff up. Uh, and that if they could just spend a few minutes or a few hours working on these things, they could be a novelist, too. How do you react to that? I mean, it's it's
3: the running joke uh, in my community is everybody thinks they can do our job. My wife, they write, we laugh about it all the time when people just say, oh, yes, I'm writing, I'm writing. Oh, good for you. <laughs> I actually had, it was about a year ago, someone from a very important think tank approached me and said, you know, we're working with a, with an allied military and they're fielding a new weapons platform. And we'd like to write some short stories that have this new weapons platform that would actually be for the crews that will now be operating. And know, sort of get them excited about it. And we'd like you to do it, and I and I asked them, how long do I have, and they said, oh, you know, could you whip it up in about a week or two? two <laughs> because this is the thing: is it? Let's say you don't do any research, right? Let's say you make your story as fantastical as possible, and this is where David and I have bonded: is all good stories, no matter what they're about. Mm-hmm. Must be psychologically valid because it doesn't matter what time frame you lived in, it doesn't matter where on the planet you grew up, it doesn't matter what culture you have. We have a basic human machine. What do we want? What are we afraid of? What do we love? What do we hate? And different cultures and different time frames can channel those. Mm -hmm. But David and I have consistently laugh over a movie. I won't say what it is, but there's a guy he's in New York with his friends and kind of losery and nerdy. and, And he talks to a girl for like 20 minutes at a party. And then a giant alien lands in New York City. Oh, my God. The military comes in. We've got to evacuate. There's a giant alien in New York City run and the guy goes wait i have to go rescue the girl that i just met at the party and talked to for 20 minutes
0: i know exactly which movie you're talking about right
3: okay <laughs> that would never happen all right you could, i don't care if you're the sweatiest most vibrating incel on planet earth <laughs> nobody would go do that so that's an example of it not being psychologically valid Sure. as opposed to in a galaxy far far away where a young hero says to his master, I can't kill my own father. That's psychologically valid. You can put yourself in their shoes. You can understand that. So just doing the human work, the mind and the heart and the soul, you can't just whip that up in a week or two and expect it to be brilliant. Maybe some people can't. I can't. That's how I feel about writing is you've got to do the homework, even if it's not the research of the world you live in. And by the way, you better do that research anyway. And I don't just mean the technology. It's got to be the right culture. It's got to be the right bureaucracy. If I'm writing about a military, I better know how that military Mm -hmm. works right down to What is the culture of the enlisted personnel versus the officers? What are the age range? What are their backgrounds? Where do they come from? I remember when I was a kid reading stories about submarines, and there was a story about a Canadian SSK under the Arctic ice. And they make a point of saying that the captain, his mother was Jewish, father was French Canadian. And I was like, okay, that gives me a sense of who this guy is, especially Mm -hmm. because my friend, the woman who introduced me to my wife, her dad was French Canadian. A Pepsi and mom's Jewish. And that's a very special cultural fusion, which mm-hmm. would influence his decision-making process. These are the, the details that you absolutely cannot ignore. The first time I met David, first time I knew this guy could be my friend was we were at a, a tech conference at a very prestigious university, and there was a you know professor, and he was very smart, he's a professor, and he was talking about robots and automation. And someone asked the question: what do you think is the public perception? of automation, love versus fear and hate. And the guy goes, well, you know, I think it's about (laughs) 50-50. And I just, I looked at the guy next to me, David, and right away we were like, yeah, okay, sure, buddy.
0: Yeah, nope. (laughs) What is the right percentage?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I think it was him versus everyone else. That's what I think the percentage
0: was. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess you've already started to answer the next question, which I had, which is how is world-building, storytelling and character development relevant for the war game experience? And what are the keys? to do that stuff well. This is for both of you.
3: Yeah, well, it's got to be valid. You've got to do your homework. You know, my hero growing up was Tom Clancy because he did his homework and not just the tech stuff. Like I said, the culture behind it. If you're building a war game, you've got to know who these people are. And it's got to be incredibly realistic. You have to feel like you could know these people. This is the problem that militaries got into in the 20th century. They became very tech-centric, which Mm -hmm. dovetailed very nicely with the Prussian model of education, which is, memorization, regurgitation, standardization. And that worked out really well when we were fighting the Prussians. In fact, we beat them in two world wars. That does not work when you're fighting the Vietnamese. There's a whole other element of hearts and minds, which was completely ignored. So when you're building a war game scenario, and this is what DeVee does so well is, It's not just about, you know, which cyber systems do you have? Which missile systems are hypersonic? You know, it is literally about this individual. What is driving them? And and what are those little quirks of details Mm -hmm. that make it human? I mean, David, he'll talk to you a little bit later about a book that he's writing. So David has a character who's a Russian spy, and he tries to come off as a sloppy drunk. And so I said, okay, in order to catch him in the act, we have to have a guy who knows acting who's take, at least taken acting classes. And I can tell you, because my mother was a Hollywood actress, rule number one of playing a drunk scene is you never play drunk. You play that you're fighting being drunk because mm-hmm. it's true. Drunk people don't surrender to it. Most of the time, drunk people are always trying to fight their drunkness and pretending to be sober. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference. Mm -hmm. So that's a little human detail.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that's excellent. And again, getting back to your book, what was great about your book was it had such complexity that, you know, not everybody reacted to the same threat the same way. And, as a scholar, that's what turns me on is trying to understand variation and how people react and how countries react differently, to the same exact thing. And so I think maybe one of the keys to a good story building is and world building is to provide a landscape that allows for choice, for agency. And then as you were suggesting, then you need to get in the minds of the actors to see why they choose the choice they choose. But what's interesting is that they have choices to make.
3: You do. And, and I've always found that history is is a wonderful defense because uh, whenever you write any sort of fiction or or you do a war game scenario, you are always going to have people saying that would never happen. Mm-hmm. And that's because human beings are terrified of imagination and they like to feel comfortable. As the comedian Trey Crowder says, Oh, same. I like same. It's a warm blanket. Ooh, different. That's scary. <laughs> so in, in order to defend your war game or your book, like you're defending a PhD thesis, what you say to someone who says that would never happen is it already has. Mm -hmm. If you can back up every choice that your character makes with choices that other people have made in the past, then you have a solid defense. And what's great about that is human beings have not changed. We are the same people we've always been. So if you look back far enough and do enough Mm -hmm. homework, you can find that even if you're defending a zombie battle, like the Battle of Yonkers, all I was doing was taking Ishan Luana when Shelmsford was massacred by the Zulus, and mm-hmm. I just zombified it.
0: Sure. Yeah, it's it's funny because uh, that what that reminds me of is I know you've bumped into Jan Dresner over the years because of his zombie book. And one of the things that seemed silliest in his book was he was talking about how in some theoretical scenario, you might actually see people ally with the zombies against the other human beings. And I can't help but look at the past couple of years of the pandemic and notice that more than a few political actors have essentially become allies of COVID. And so, yes, the history can teach us, or now the present can teach us that some of the things we imagined aren't so wild after all.
3: Well, it's funny you say that. I had that in, uh, I think, before Dan Dresner wrote that, somebody else wrote about it in a book and called them quizlings. Yes. Uh, where people, because there is something in our nature that makes a certain percentage of us want to always ally with those in power. No matter what you're doing, no matter who it is, whether it's a slave master or a Nazi camp guard, there's always somebody who says, I will be a good child to the father, and I will help him punish the other children, and then I won't get punished.
0: Hmm. Now I'm depressed. So let's talk more about Sleeping Giants. This is the game that David's team played with us last summer, the Summer Institute. It's now gone under some adaptation. And you're turning it like all good games. You want to turn it into a, a, a book, and then I assume a movie. David, is that is that the the, the process?
2: Oh, well, let's let's work on the book first here. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so for me, when I design a game, I want it to feel like a well built book or movie. And so, you know, taking Sleeping Giants, which we're now on our fifth year of running it. Um, obviously, it's gone through a lot of iterations since then, it seemed very natural to take it and to work on that adaptation because the story world was very much built. In the process of getting that project kickstarted, I actually came to to Max to bring him on as a consultant to build some of the protagonist characters because I felt like the world was very well half built. <laughs> um, you know, Since it's a war game, I had never had a need for protagonists instead the players were their own protagonists and put together kind of a a rough sketch and Max did a, a wonderful job of building uh, some of the central characters to the book. And they've, of course, gone through some adaptations and iterations since then. But like the core that he put together still kind of shines through and guides the way that I'm thinking about them. As Max had flagged, the intention to write a novel doesn't make you a novelist. And um, I'm, I'm working with a co-author, a, an Australian novelist named John Birmingham. And there are a lot of things that I've learned about the craft that have been super interesting as we've worked together. You know, to start with, uh, one thing that was kind of nice that I've gotten value through my conversations with Max and now with John as well is I'd always considered that the way I build a world is similar to a novelist's craft. And as John and I were first exploring this collaboration, and I was walking him through the nooks and crannies of the world, he said, yeah, you and I build and I build a fictional world in exactly the same way. But what I had missed is the difference between a story world and a story, which is kind of you know obvious if some, someone stops to think about it. But I'd missed it when I was thinking about the book And I find that most people who've worked on the war game who think about the book miss it as well, which is we have a story world where things happen. There's this overarching world, geopolitical events. We've built the culture of the world, but there's no story until you actually have characters that are interacting with the world and a plot and things happen to them. One thing that, that John remarked is that some novelists, in his view, don't get this, that some novelists build wonderful story worlds And, you know, the book is lovingly written with many aspects of the story world, but no actual story. And so taking that and adapting it, the big adaptation of the characters that Max built is, you know, when I first asked him for the characters, I asked kind of for the wrong roles. They were too removed from the action. And, you know, increasingly the characters have crept closer and closer To what amounts to a mystery at the center of the Sleeping Giants world, a mystery involving a new Russian disinformation campaign involving a cult-like organization that uh, appears to be a tool of a U.S. great power competitor Mm -hmm. and a mysterious murder in the middle of New York City that seems to have some links back to a diplomat at the Russian embassy. So that's kind of how we refashioned it. But yeah, that's where Sleeping Giants is. And we're supposed to um, sending it to publishers. So I'm excited to see the project move forward.
0: Very cool. I really enjoyed the game last summer. I was too busy wrapped up in the organizing of the, the week-long institute to play the game myself. I just got to watch the reactions then, and then watch the report afterwards. And it was really striking that, for instance, one of the teams we had play was it was not just the United States. and in China and Canada, but it was also meta, which is we had you know private actors, the Facebook essentially. And I think the, the participants were really delighted in, in having sort of different kinds of actors interact in the in this space. So I really thought that was very cool. I guess what one of the last questions I have for you is the point of these games is not to get to an outcome, right? I mean, at the end of the game, people are declared winners and losers, but what is it they're supposed to get out of these games? Is is it to know themselves better or is it to know what to do in these circumstances? What are you trying to get them to think about? you know, a week later, two weeks later down the road after they've played these games?
2: So the answer is going to depend on the game. Let's anchor it in a game like Sleeping Giants, which we categorize as a crafted game. Mm -hmm. And what we mean when we call it that is that unlike, you know, a competitive game or a game built for a specific purpose, this is a game that I designed on spec, meaning that there was no immediate buyer. We figured people would be interested in playing it. And so it's designed the way that we wanted, that I wanted to design it, that we wanted to design it. And, you know, built with very fleshed out characters with complex relationships Uh, similar to what max said you know you've got to do the homework you've got to know these people and that's how that world is built that's how it feels when one steps into it for a game like that as with a lot of things in my war games my theory is very different than that which prevails within the field as you said winners are declared. but I personally don't do a whole lot in terms of lessons learned from decision making unless it's very obvious, right? Like we had uh, one game where uh, you know the, the German team bought up a bunch of Middle Eastern oil. this was prior to the the recent uh, energy crisis in Europe and threatened Vladimir Putin saying that they were no longer dependent on him. And then, you know, he shut down their gas pipeline because they just didn't understand their energy market. That was obviously a mistake, right? That comes out in the lessons learned in the game. Mm. But generally speaking, I don't really go much for lessons learned. And the reason being that I think it makes the game less powerful, right? It makes it as though as a referee, you understand the world and think that you have wisdom to impart what worked and what didn't and why that was the case. And I actually think that that is, um, like, to me, anything a referee thinks is going to be bounded by the referee's assumptions. There might be areas where they're definitely right, but there are going to be areas where they don't fully understand the way the world works or the way cause and effect would work in their game world. So to me, it's to leave kind of multiple really interesting threads, somewhat unresolved, right? You know, the game will come together, but to me, if people find compelling questions within the course of the game and those questions haunt them, then the game is a success. So for the crafted game, it's in part that. And then the second thing that I think absolutely people need to take away is the kind of skills you don't learn in a classroom. Mm -hmm. So what I found for games that we run is that things that are very important include being able to do situational research, which is something I never learned in college, never learned in graduate school, but that I've used constantly during my career. And there are principles for good situational research, and there's ways that you can do very ineffective situational research. Uh, Another uh, skill that's not obvious is, you know, negotiation how to read a table, how to read an opponent, uh, inferring what someone might be doing and trying to hide from you, these are all very important in your professional day-to-day and things that don't really come up, generally speaking, in a university education. Those are all the kinds of things that I want someone to come away from our games
3: possessing.
0: Well, that's terrific.
3: I would say, I would add, I think the point of of these games and of every of every war game, there's also an emotional aspect. And it's to become comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. What I mean is that feeling that we all had of, of feeling small and scared, and your first day at a new school when you were a child. We all remember that feeling, right? You walk in there, that big, crowded, noisy room, and you don't know anybody, mm-hmm. and you feel absolutely naked and helpless that is the absolute best feeling you can have if it is harnessed to drive you to adapt because at that moment when you walk into that classroom as that little kid you're mm-hmm. at your most flexible you're at your most ready to adapt and be brave and learn and grow and you lose we all lose that feeling and then we feel uh, you know at the end of high school where we feel confident smart we know what we're doing or in college or whatever That's the worst feeling you can have in a crisis situation, because that's when you're at your least flexible. And what war games can do is reacquaint you with this feeling because you come to the game your plan your strategy. Here's how it's going to go. I'm a smart Mm. guy. I know what I'm doing. Bam. You are so wrong. (laughs) You realize, oh, my God, war plan orange is not going to work. The battleships are at the bottom of the Pacific. And what a war game can do is reacquaint you with that feeling and make you comfortable with it. So you can learn to live within that space and switch on those part of your brain that have been so dormant. Because mm-hmm. we all need to do that now. I mean, look at Canada. For how long was Canada geographically, like New Zealand, safe and comfortable? And now the, we're not talking about change. The world's changing. Literally, the planet is changing. Mm -hmm. And Canada has gone geographically from being New Zealand to Poland. (laughs) And there's a whole lot of adaptation that needs to take place now. This notion of Canadian national security is wide open. And in order to prepare Canada, those guarding the wall need to feel like that child on that first day of school again.
0: Oh, that's terrific. I really appreciate that. I I wasn't a... Department of uh, National Defense building the day after Trump won the election. So I can tell you, uh, there's a whole lot of people feeling like school kids that day, given what the assumptions were about Canadian national security.
3: It's great that you all felt that way, that there wasn't someone arrogant in the room going, oh, no, no, I know what's going to
0: happen. Sure. (laughs) So the last question I have for you, Max, is this. Uh, One of the standard jokes of the past two and a half years, more or less, and maybe throughout the entire Trump era, but particularly since the pandemic, has been, well, the writers of 2022 have really gone over the top this time with this story or that story. As someone who's written a book about a pandemic and how people react to it, do you feel as if the past few years have exceeded your expectations as a fiction writer? Or do you think that the writers have been a little bit overwrought and have gone too far?
3: Well, I I think that as Tom Clancy said, I think it was in some of all fears. Had anyone predicted the changes of of the last few years, they would have been institutionalized. I think we're living in a time where where change is the norm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also very hard on my generation, on Gen X, the American Gen X. I, I don't know, in Canada, it's, it's Gen Snow, whatever.
0: Uh, no, it's Gen X, so we're the same thing.
3: Okay, was, there you go. I need to do my homework. Uh, <laughs> but we grew up in a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity, unless of course you were African American living in our inner cities. But for most of America, there weren't riots. We weren't tearing each other apart. There was no war. There was no draft. And I'm watching my fellow Gen Xers just melt down, mm-hmm. especially because they have no knowledge of history. So they think this is all new. They don't understand that, that we were the anomaly, that history is chaos and crisis and learning to adapt. They thought history was just calm. And now they think, oh, my God, there's a pandemic. Well, tell that to my mentor, Alan Alda, who grew up with polio. Mm-hmm. and had to learn how to walk again, you know, or people tearing each other apart. Tell that to the the baby boomers and the greatest generation who grew up. Forget George Floyd when there were tanks on the street mm-hmm. and the National Guard had live ammo with orders to shoot to kill. So, Dude. yeah, there was there's been a lot of changes. And by the way, I mean, you want to talk about chaos laid out in fiction. I ain't got nothing on Cronenberg and some of the stuff that he's done. And mm-hmm. one of the best plague movies ever, I can't remember what it was called, Was it, it wasn't Contagion, it wasn't, Outbreak. but it was, it was a plague unleashed on Canada, not in America. While we were dancing under the disco ball, you were turning out some really great dystopian <laughs> 1970s science fiction, and it was brilliant. So there are always people who are going to imagine this stuff. But the question is, do we listen? And this is, this is the lecture I give at West Point. Mm-hmm. is don't worry about finding great ideas, right? I think the military got it all wrong. They, they thought that, they're, that they didn't have enough creative types. Not true at all. The creative types are there. Do you have a system that allows for and rewards championing creativity? Because in the creative process, it's not the guy or girl that comes up with the great idea. It's the person that has the courage to stand next to them and say, I stake everything on this idea and I'm willing to bet my career.
0: Well, that's a, a great ending to this episode. Really instructive uh, for us to think about what ideas we should champion and to, and to be champions of good ideas. And, and so I'm very happy to be championing what Valens has been doing. It's been good for the CDSN with our Summer Institute last year. And this upcoming year, we're going to tweak the game a little bit So that way, while it creates a fair amount of stress for our participants, it probably hopefully will create 15% less stress than it did last year, make it work within the week of the activities. And I really appreciate the two of you uh, sharing what you're up to, because I think there's a lot of misperceptions about what these games are. It's funny. uh, There was a New York Times story apparently today about video games and saying it was something up until recently only children played. And that led to a lot of horror on the internet because, of course we've all been playing video games and all other kinds of games as adults for quite some time. And I think these kinds of games that you're talking about here are, are very much good for adults to play to make them rethink some of their assumptions about things. And to think through some of these scenarios. So I appreciate your time today and I look forward to the books that you both write in the future, fictional or otherwise. So that way we can live in your worlds. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so much, Steve. Here. Thank for you. Thank you.